רגע, לפני שמתחילים, אם אתם יכולים, בבקשה, דרגו אותנו באפליקציית הפודקאסטים שלכם. זה מאוד מאוד יעזור לנו להפיץ את הבשורה של הערוץ ליותר אנשים. ממש תודה רבה לכם. פתיח ומתחילים. Professor Sir David Spiegelhalter is one of Great Britain's most celebrity scientists. He is a statistic professor at Cambridge University. From 2007 till 2018, he was a Winton professor of public understanding of risk in the statistical laboratory at, Cam- at the University of Cambridge, and he is also one of ISI's most highly cited researchers, which is... A, a great source of envy for me, but we will talk it later, but we'll talk about it later. And this is a book that he wrote, The Art of Statistics, Learning for Data, which is a great book. Plus, he's a world expert in loop, which is a circular version of pool, or as we call it in Israel, billiard. Now I know that pool and billiard are not the same thing, nevertheless. So, Sir Professor David Spiegelholter, thank you so much for coming. How are you today? I'm fine, I'm fine. It's great. It's a beautiful sunny day here in England. Uh, and this is a very rare occasion sunny beautiful it, it's it's beautiful and sunny so it's very yeah rare. exactly exactly okay rare. okay so with your permission let's start with uh, the difficult questions okay now there is a concept both in psychology and artificial intelligence of transfer learning now the idea is that you learn something a skill in a specific domain and this knowledge somehow transferred to other domains as well Now, we also know that your ability to transfer learn increases as the two domains are more similar. So my question is, how well do you play pool? In other, in other words, how loop and pool similar? How much loop and pool are similar? Oh, okay, okay. So, um, yeah, I, I had a very bad youth, so I spent a lot of time playing snooker and billiards in, in, and so which uh, and I got I got fairly good at it. And then someone invented this game, a loop, which is not circular, it's elliptical. So uh, it's it's played on an elliptical table. Now you know an ellipse, and it's got you know a focus here and a focus there. And on one of these focus, it there's the hole. and the other one, there's a dot. Now, the, the mathematics of ellipses is such that any line that goes through the one focus, the dot, will bounce off the side and go th- through the other focus, the, the way the light reflects around an ellipse, which means that you can play on an elliptical pool table rather well, because if you can hit a ball over one over that dot, it should go into the pocket, the other pocket. So it's only got one pocket in the whole table. And so um, and you played a bit like billiards, uh, but with this one pocket. And uh, I won the competition. So I got some crummy little trophy. And I think there's only one table in the world. So th- there's not been a replay yet in the world championship. So <laughs> I, I think I'm still the world champion. Yeah. So again, uh, since there is like this very big difference between loop and pool. So your ability to play pool is not you are not a, even close to all the expert in pool because again this one thing with this one difference that you just mentioned makes a whole new game yeah, but it, there's again I used a mixture of a bit of old skill of playing normal pool and then mathematical knowledge and mathematical ability to realize that you had to completely change your strategy because also with a table 
with a with a smooth surface you can actually hit the ball and it goes right the way around the table and comes back to where it was which of course you cannot do on a rectangular table so you could break if you were snookered if you were blocked you could hit it in completely the wrong direction and it would go all the way around and come back the other side so these are these new tricks that had to be developed in order to play on a different shape table It's like the difference between <clears throat> Euclidean geometry and... and yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> yeah, suddenly, I'm in, a I'm in a curved space. That's yeah. very useful, yeah, yeah. Okay, now, <laughs> when I write your name on Spotify, and what I see over and over again is you talking about risk. And this is part of what you do. You explain risk, you try to <clears throat> educate the general public about true risk in life. And many people don't understand risk. For example, shark attacks... are much more rare than drawing in your private pool. And many, many other examples like, like this. Now, in the context of Israel, and I'm talking from Israel, the risk of getting injured in a car accident is much more severe, much more common than a terror attack. Much more common. Now, do you agree with this line of thought that We shouldn't be so much afraid of terror attack because car accidents are much more dangerous in the pure mathematical sense. Or there is a rational justification to be more intimidated by terror attack. By the way, the, the Latin root of the word terror is fear. So what's your take on, on that? Yeah. I, when I started working in risk, I come from a background of mathematics and statistics, and I, I started with a, this very strict rational approach. We should look at the numbers and do the probability, and, and our, in a way, our response then should be proportional to uh, that these, these absolute risks. I've soon changed my mind. I think because I've now I've spent for the last, you know, nearly 15 years, I suppose, mainly working with psychologists and social scientists on this, and I've been so influenced by the brilliant work of people like Paul Slovik and Barrett Fishoff and these others who um, who worked on this stuff for decades and and Barrett Fishoff in particular is extremely good at, at distinguishing saying there's risk as analysis which is what you're talking about and then there's risk as feeling our emotional response to threat and situations and he says you cannot separate these these are you know these are so strongly intertwined. That we have to take them both into account and so our response to and, and again lots of research showing that our response to threats is not you know proportional and it never will be proportional to the absolute risk because our emotions come into it so strongly and you know the, the Paul Slovik 30 40 years ago established these sort of fright factors or, or you know things that really trigger an emotional response to do with them um, um Uh, essentially a lot of it is someone else to blame you know whose fault is it why am I experiencing this is it something I volunteered to do like drive a car or is it something being imposed on me from outside is a, a huge difference immediately in the example you're doing shows the difference in that um you know the you know the um unfairness of a, of a risk you know is it being are the vulnerable being exposed to it and um, whether I understand that threat, Uh, whether it's or whether it's really mysterious and strange and things like that. and you can see this these ideas there's others as well which I'm sure we can imagine but um there we can see these fears being worked out in in all our lives you know whether it's the fact the enormous threat with Fukushima the huge you know terror of of escaped radiation from a nuclear power plant now in fact of course it was absolutely minimal and 
vast amount more harm caused by the evacuation than was ever caused by any of the radiation. So minimal human risk from the radiation, massive harm caused by the evacuation, a huge over-response by the authorities and around the world of fear of this. Because radiation is somebody's fault, it's invisible, we don't really quite understand it, it appears, you know, it, 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 it triggers all those fright feelings in us. Now, that's a situation where I think there was a real irrational over-response because of these feelings. But the, we, the, we can't deny this. We can't just say, oh, we all should be perfect, rational human beings. We are not. And thank goodness, you know, it, it, it would be awful if we were. So I think this sort of rational response, you know, I, I, I do think it's good to think about magnitudes. And in COVID, you could see, you know, the, the, the people feel very differently different about um, threats depending on where they come from you can see people blaming other people for not wearing masks and they're exposing me to risk and so again we have this very emotional response because of who's responsible for my anxiety so i i i, I i'm not sure if i'm uh, sounding very clear here but i what i'm saying i suppose is that you cannot take out the emotional response and it's inappropriate to do that but we should also, I think, recognize that there can be a real contradiction and to explore that, at least to demonstrate it and say, well, now, look, actually, the risk is a lot higher. But that doesn't mean that you are wrong or stupid or anything to respond in this. way. No, you're human. You're, you're human. human. You're human. Uh, but, the, but, but the but people. You... Yes. Yeah. But the people I want to be a little less human are the policymakers because they should be thinking about in the big, they should be thinking about what is the biggest impact on the health and the well-being of society and things like that. They should be able to take a bigger picture of this and not be quite so vulnerable to um, people's anxieties. And you can see this being played out, you know, all the time about balancing risks. Oh, I mean, we could talk about, I don't know, the German approach to nuclear power and, and the mess that's got them in now because of this enormous anxiety about nuclear power, which is, I think is completely ill-founded, you know, enormously safe technology, and, uh, and the enormous mess that's got them into in this case. Yeah. But, but what you say is, okay, we are human, and we can't, uh, and, and, the, and the emotional fear and the mathematical fear are, are intertwined. And it was Daniel Bernoulli who said, okay, like in the late 1770s, like over two, 200 years ago, that we don't take like in profit, we use, a, we, we think about how, how, what we have already and then we extrapolate the degree of happiness so we are human but your job as an advocated or advocate of risk math to the general public is your job is to say listen i know that you're emotional but hey the numbers are completely different therefore statistic means the arithmetics of the state okay because the state has nothing left nothing other than statistic therefore we need to make the massive amount of effort in car accidents because they are much much more severe much more uh, more fatal mm, yeah no but i don't think again no i think i obviously that you do need to do this but the 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 
we, the state also know that anxiety about terror attacks can be paralyzed a society. It can cause huge economic disruption if people have that degree of anxiety. And there's, I, I think it is quite justifiable that a state wants to avoid its population for political reasons as much as anything to have that degree of, um, you know, uh, there's, there's this nice term outrage that, that, that uh, people are outraged. This should not happen. This should not happen in society. There are certain things that just should not happen. Even if they're very rare, even if they happen to a few people, people will feel this should not happen. And therefore, I think quite rationally, you know, there's a lot of expenditure to avoid these, these things that should not happen. And because of people's feelings that this is just, um, you know, just unacceptable in a moment. Okay. Since people are irrational sometimes, or in, to some degrees, we as, uh, as the state need to apply rational thinking and combining those factors as well. Well, I think that basically you just need to be transparent. I think you can do both. You can say, well, actually, terrorist attacks or, or these terrible disaster things are extreme, are rare, very, not that many people are, are killed and injured. We've had them in the UK as well, of course. Um, and, but we are still going to, you know, spend resources on trying to prevent these um, because, you know, because we don't feel that these are, have got a place in modern society. And they, I mean, you can see this in transport as well, you know, the, the enormous amount of money that's spent on, say, preventing the UK, preventing rail accidents. And nobody's been killed in a rail accident in the UK for, I think, about 15 years. So, you know, they're unbelievably safe to travel by train. Um, and, uh, you know, you could say almost, well, you know, they're almost too safe. <laughs> you know, the huge money that's spent on making them even safer. <laughs> They're already just ridiculously safe, almost. Isn't it? So, um, but but people feel a train crash. You know, it looks so catastrophic, it's so awful that it, it, it again people have a um, a feeling of outrage. This should not happen. And it's like so, a plane crash. It's like oh, a, a plane crash as well. Yeah. So, um, in fact, the Rail Safety Board in the UK has employed a philosopher who did some wonderful analysis because they were wondering why why are people still saying we should make the train safer when they're so safe <laughs> why do they have to be safe? and and he went through all this so they you, they needed to have a philosopher to essentially bring all this idea out about public outrage and how in a sense to avoid that then there was a demand to spend a lot of money so i think the point is that i i never want to say anything's right or wrong that's not my job at all but i think what i really wanted just to see transparency about everything And benefits, try to explain. Explain. And the benefits and harms of all policy. If you're going to spend a lot of money on lowering what is already a very low risk. Okay, this is the effect. And this is the cost because you're spending a huge amount of money which you could spend somewhere else and spend better. So my, my approach is not that... Well, I, I never tell anyone what to do. It's not my job at all. Um, all I say is that when there is a decision based on risk, let's at least be honest about it. And see the benefits and harms and very broadly expressed so not just in terms of you know things we can count the crucial thing is you don't just measure what is it's easy to count things no that the difficult bit is what isn't being counted which is people's feelings and people's responses so that is important but it's just one part of the equation 
So that it's part of the equation, part of the balance. And sometimes it's just not worth it. You know, really, we're spending, we can be spent. Oh, I don't know. Oh, I've got nuclear waste disposal. Oh, my God, the vast amounts of money spent on something that is so safe. It's untrue. Uh, just in order to vaguely keep some people and happy. And the other part is that you can put price tag on everything, including human life. And this is what we do in the NIH. Or this is what you do when you take one drug and put it inside, yeah, you know, the, sure. the medicine market, you know, that you yeah. that this is a free medicine, et cetera, et cetera. You can put price tag on everything, been, including life, and you do it all the time. We've been doing that in the UK for about 20 years now. Um, the price doesn't seem to have gone up that much. You know, it was always £20,000 for a year. It started off about £15,000, went up to £20,000. That's up about £30,000 um, for a life, a healthy life year, what the National Health Service is prepared to pay for a new treatment. But one, of the, one of the issue things, this is, this is set up and it, it got accepted, really. Everyone thought this is a rational way to decide what resources. But typically with this, you've got a nice sort of rule and then people keep on finding exceptions. Oh, Oh, except oh, for serious cancer care, we'll pay a lot more for that. Um, end of life care, when people, you know, it's a last resort, people only got a few months to live, we'll pay a lot more for that. So children, we'll pay a lot more for that. So it, it's, um, it, and I'm not saying that's wrong, but it is what happens. But I, again, it's because it actually is being transparent and it's acknowledging there are um, societal, uh, you know, societal values coming into that, but they're transparent. So that's fine. That's fine. You know, in, in our initial conversation, you said that you are not Jewish, although you have a very yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. peculiar Jewish name. So let me give you like the the Jewish take on, on price tag of on life. Yeah. And there was a rabbi called Maram of Wurttemberg in the 12th century, I think, and he was kidnapped by the Gentiles and they demanded like a tremendous amount of money for him. And he said, and this was like the Judeo rule, that the price tag of a man is how much he will be worth as a as a as a slave in the market. So I'm not taking into account, you know, how smart he is, how how beneficial he is for society. I just want to be. I just to give him the price tag of a slave, and he died in prison because he didn't allow for his community to free him. Oh, so oh is a what a story! Thing. What yes. a story! Yes, so we don't make any exception like in the old Judea, but you know, in Israel, in Israel, we make a lot of exception. But Maram of Utenberg say the worth of a man is how much he was as a slave. And yeah. this is a very interesting way of thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, it's very egalitarian. Yes, yeah. yes. Very, yeah, very functional uh, definition. Yeah, okay. I don't now, think I don't I don't I don't think I'd be worth very much. <laughs> <laughs> and again, in Israel, you know, when in Israel we, we with all this thing with Hamas, and we value life much more than our enemies, and therefore this is so uneven when you come to negotiation. But uh, this is like the new Israel, and, and not like the. Judeo, uh, uh, the halacha Judeo philosophy. This is very strange. Okay, now there is another uh, concept in risk. I think that you introduced it to me because it's called micromort. Micromort. That you just uh, fell off, you know, you you just uh, parachute, how you say it, from an airplane to demonstrate this, yes? Yeah, it did a skydive. So what is micromort? Yeah. 
okay, microbot. I didn't invent it. Ron Howard from Stanford invented it. And in a way, it is it's taking this the first approach, the rational approach. So it is trying to put a number on the risks that we take. And so it's a one in a million chance of getting killed. So it's to do with acute risks, accidents, things which will kill you on the spot. So it's not to do with the effects of drinking or smoking or coffee, not the long-term chronic risks. Is it? This is to do with dangerous activities. Bungee and, jump. Sorry? Bungee jump. Like bungee bungee jump. jump. Well, I, I don't know what the stats are on bungee jumps. Probably quite low. A lot of the things we do, which we consider fairly risky, come in at about five to ten. So um, scuba Sky diving. diving. Sky, skydiving is between five and about seven to ten. So in other words, there's, you know, out of every million skydives, around it, roughly about, you know, seven to ten people will get killed in doing it. Um, and same, roughly the same for scuba diving. Running a marathon is about seven in a million. So a lot of these things people do voluntarily um, come in at, which have got some risk, come in at much more than that, and it's considered really jump dangerous. Base jumping, you know, it's about four, jumping, sort of jumping off some cliff with a, you know, a set of wings. You know, that's about 400 or something like that. So very rare that people are prepared to do that. But you incorporate your age. You say, okay, since I'm old, sorry, David. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm old. Uh, they, I need to, I need to treat the micromotes differently. So you yeah. explain how, how your age plays a role. Yeah, I think so. That's again, quite an emotional response because I, I was, I did a skydive for this TV program. I was demonstrating it. So I reckon there's about seven micromotes. Now, first of all, you know, that's, on average that's about a week's worth of normal risk because it's about one it's about my every time you get out of bed you know, <laughs> you know that's about and the, you know you live a normal day on average it's about one micromore you know that something will happen car will knock you over you know something will fall on your head you'll trip over something like that. so average one varies quite a lot with age um it's higher for younger and older people because older people have more accidents and younger people have more accidents um But as I, you know, my risk of dying every day just goes up as I get older. I'm 69 or something. And how old am I? 68. Anyway. Um, so um, it goes up all the time. So in a way, as a, doing a skydive now, when I haven't got so many years to live um, as, as when I'm young, is, is, is using up, in a way, <laughs> less of the risk that I've actually got. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm living with all the time. It's a smaller proportion of the risk I'm actually facing because when you're young, you know, you're incredibly safe. No, no, you know, for a Western, you know, primary school kid, seven year, eight year old kid, no one's ever been safer in the whole history of humanity. So, you know, actually, it doesn't make sense then to go skydiving. But for some old fool like me, you know, I might as well do it. I've been thinking of taking up motorcycling, which is the <laughs> most dangerous thing you can ever think of. But I kind of think, well, you know, well, why let not? me tell you what got me, what really surprised me in your TV special. It wasn't just the math that you say, okay, this is, you know, A is bigger than B. You just got on an airplane and jumped. So <laughs> you, it was like, it wasn't like a theoretical math. It was practical, uh, practical yeah. math that you actually apply those concepts in real life and jumped out of an airplane. Which yeah, was... but, I, but I only did it once. I'm not going to take it up as a hobby. And similarly, I will ride on, a, I, went on a ride, I went for a ride on the motor, back of a motorbike last week. I'm not going to, I don't actually want to do it regularly. Because I, I, one of the problems of getting older, in fact, for my own sake, I, you know, I think it's quite sensible to take risks and things like that. But I would kind of want to be around for my children and grandchildren and things like that. You know, there's, it's actually, 
uh, it's, I like getting older. And, and so you can contribute to society much more. Oh, wow. Well, yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I don't, again, I don't okay. know. Yeah. From there, let's go to your great book, The Art of Statistics, Learning from Data. And I, I tell my freshman data science students to read it because I think it's, it's a fabulous read. It's a fabulous and it's a great read. But let's start with the second word, The Art. Now, yeah. it seems that statistics is a boring, heavy math thing and you incorporate the word out. Absolutely. Now, unless... unless Your ability to play with the number and lie with statistic is a measure of how good artist you are. So why did you say why did you write out? Oh yeah, it's out about statistics. Completely deliberate because it was trying to get away from the way that people are often taught. They do their stat 101 course in university and it's just you know here's some data, here's a method to apply to it. this is how you fit a line, this is how you do a height a test. You can calculate these statistics and out comes an answer. And, um, and I, I'm, it's awful because it, it's just it's some algorithmic process. There's data and you do things to it almost as a, as a sort of automatic process. And out comes some conclusion. It's taught, it can be taught like that. And worst of all, my fear is that that might be the approach within data science. Because as I'm brought being brought up as a statistician from a mathematical point of view from probability theory I I love data science I, I it's, and I love the thought of bringing these two fields together because I really think this is the most essential um, development in I would say in intellectual life you know for the next so many decades that these ideas coming together I think it's staggeringly important and so um, I wrote the book in order to you Try to bridge this bridge this gap and and to emphasize this idea that this is not an automatic process that handling data drawing conclusions from debt from from statistics from numbers is is an art form it requires judgment all the time and experience and knowledge and context and care and thought and discussion this is not an algorithm you don't just get some data and throw uh, a million different things machine learning methods at it and then out comes an answer you know this is not this is not um, appropriate professional behavior as well say let's so, say it differently because I think it's very important what you just said David Burton in the history of math of mathematics says that statistic and probability I think much more probability is so counterintuitive to our uh, non Western civilization like like if you take a Uh, to 20,000 years ago or back, it is so counterintuitive to the homo sapiness that it took humanity many, many years to, to develop this notion of uncertainty. And, and the last notion of, of how is the infinity. There, there, yeah, yeah, yeah. Therefore, infinity, like in group theory and counter-infinity, was developed or invented in the... The la in the first period of the 20th century because it's so counterintuitive that you can't grasp infinity and you can't grasp probability I, I, I I'm very clear in the book you know I do I for the one thing in the in the book unlike most statistics books I leave probability as late as possible it doesn't come until two-thirds of the way through the book which is the new way I think which I think a very good way to teach statistics the probability comes in very late partly because you don't need it. And, and because it's so difficult I mean I was saying you know uh, I've got a quote in there for that I, I use when people say well why you know why do people find 
you know, probability and statistical inference. Why do they find it so difficult? And I and I say, well, I've worked in this area for, you know, for 40 years now. And I finally concluded after years of work that it's because it really is difficult. <laughs> you know, this is difficult. You know, and I say in the book, sorry, this bit, is this is probability. This is difficult. This is not intuitive. I, I, I know it, my intuition about probability is terrible. Algebra and things, I can sort of feel I can work through something and I've got a feeling for what might come out. Not probability. It is so unintuitive. So it's really, it is tricky. So I suppose the two, my, that's almost my two themes of the book is that first of all, you need judgment in looking at data. But secondly, when you do actually start doing the technical stuff, it's challenging as well to understand what's going on. So it's this, I, I think, a beautiful combination of, of judgment and craft and skill combined with something that actually can be technically um, quite difficult and intellectually difficult as well. So it's not easy uh, and it requires, you know, I, I, I tend to think of it much more as a sort of craft, almost like people... I don't know, I do stained glass work. I'm not very good at it, but I know if I did more and more and more, I would get better and better and I could I could learn about it, but I'm never going to be able to reduce that to some algorithmic process. And it's not just how when you when you present the Simpson paradox or the Monty Hall problem yeah. or all yeah. other, you know, girl-boy paradox or girl no, in Florida, no, it's no. when you just, what the probability to all fall in an even die, die, die or dice? There will be two dice, no, one die. Okay, so so because what does it mean? And and when ah. you go to the meaning of probability, ah. and there is a great uh, wiki article or wiki page about the meaning of probability, it's so, well, okay, let's say that I rolled the dice six times and I didn't get four. Whom do I call to? Uh, yeah. What do we do? So, yeah. so, I, so, I, I, I'm quite pleased. I think mine, mine is a very basic book. There's almost no maths in it. But there's a big chunk of the philosophy of probability with, I think, six different possible meanings that people have come up for it. I mean, what is probability? Does it even exist? Because this is an un unresolved philosophical problem. Nobody agrees on this. I've got my view. It's very rather quite strong and radical, um, but, and which I've never shifted from for 50 years. But, you know, other people have different views. So it's actually revealing that on the base, underneath all this sort of intellectual structure is a very um, difficult foundation. I mean, what is probability? And, you know, I would say it doesn't exist. And so uh, I, I think we just made the whole thing up. So what do you mean? Just a, okay. So we, we know there is like the frequent uh, approach and there is a Bayesian approach or the, or the subjective approach. But what do we mean by it's not exist? It not exist. Well, it, it's the um, it's the essentially the, the fairly extreme subjectivist Bayesian approach, which is what I take. So I'm, uh, I was in, introduced to De Finetti's work um, you know, back when I was about 19. And uh, and he starts his book. It's called The Theory of Probability. And in the first paragraph, he says, in big letters, probability does not exist. And so uh, I, I, it doesn't have a, a separate out there entity for itself. Except I have to, we do always make, have to make this except, except possibly at the subatomic level. When, you know, because there, you know, Hawking and others have said that there you know, is that real uncertainty. There are real, well, real, genuine, determined probabilities. That there's nothing behind these probabilities. Nothing more we could know 
could ever tell us about this is when... great nothing behind the probability because what mm-hmm. david now says just a second let me just yeah. explain that the bezian approach means that so that probability is just a measure of how subjectively certain you are in a in a specific outcome let's say that i'm going to say that uh, the probability of donald trump uh, wins the election in 2024 i think is 60 percent it only means that i subjectively i myself i believes in a 60 percent believes quantity what what whatever that means that he will win okay yeah, the problem the probability is re- you're expressing a relationship between you you own the probability it's your probability it's not the problem you should never in my in my my school of thinking you should never use the word the probability because that suggests it's some objective property of the world rather than your judgment about how the world works except possibly at the subatomic level i have to keep on adding that in but what is the probability of getting four aces in a row in a shuffle deck so there is like i I, I could say it's it's there's the probability doesn't exist because it completely depends on the context um who who shuffled the deck If um, Percy Diaconis shuffles the deck, if Percy Diaconis, you should be aware. Put, he can put them on the top. So <laughs> I, I, you know, you have to make massive assumptions. In other words, all probabilities are conditional. They're conditional on your knowledge and assumptions. So they all are judgments based. They're all conditional, except at the subatomic. <laughs> except the subatomic. Okay. So let's move to another thing, which is a great and you like you organize my thoughts so well. In page 78 and it goes and you say okay it goes from data to sample to study population yeah. to target population yeah. and I think the idea was like the example was uh, how uh, how sex how many sex partners uh, yeah. usually a youth or ad, ad, adolescences in Great Britain so there is a data when what people say yeah. and then you try to extrapolate from the data to What is the real number in yeah. the sample and then there is a study population when you try to extrapolate from the real numbers that you didn't get you just got the number you need to extrapolate for the target for the study population and then you need to extract for this target population yeah. which is much harder and every bit of this process is harder and harder and harder yeah. therefore when I when I uh, conduct a poll about you know, The average sex partner in the UK and I want to extract the real number which is hidden just God knows the real number of how many sex partner this is a very very challenging almost impossible task yes well we can have a go but what that does is reveal these you know three different stages at which you know errors and mistakes can occur and the sex partner one is I think partly because I've, I've helped I've worked with the people who do those surveys so you know and I've written a whole book on sex statistics so I know about that area and know about the problems of as you said of going from what somebody you are, you are not you I'm, I'm not pointing at you but what somebody says when you ask them the question through which you actually you don't care how many sex you know partners somebody this actual person says you couldn't care less it's all anonymous but what you want to know is in the whole country what's going on? And to go to the, as you said, go from those stages, you is there's all sorts of places where biases and errors can occur. The person may may lie, they may not know, they can't remember. That's quite frequent. And then you know you're actually the people you're asking aren't random and et cetera, et cetera. So all different issues which we have to think about. So that's why you cannot just take the data you've got 
and say, well, therefore, this means X. You know, this means something. No, you have to think about all these processes. And God, I mean, this is what the detective, it's detective work. It's forensic statistics, which is what I spent the last two years doing in COVID. You know, endless claims that people say, oh, look, here's some data. This means that masks don't work or masks do work or this means that the vaccines are harming people or the vaccines are really working and so they take a bit of data and israel of course had some of the best data on, on. yes it's a fantastic source of knowledge and information i kind of i always think britain has done pretty well in terms of its statistics contribution to covid statistics but i think it must be up there between israel and israel and, and britain who's done the most kudos for israel yeah yeah no brilliant stuff early good data really strong and strong stone good quality studies as well so so they i mean i i always look of course at where it comes from and so <laughs> yes. you know how am i going to believe this claim you know where where it comes from so um the again what this shows is that you know in a way the skeptical mind not cynical but the questioning mind critical mind that i'm not going to believe the data i'm just seeing and drawing some claim on it this is one of the most difficult things to do and to teach in almost the easy part of statistics is analyzing the data in front of you what you learn in your courses at university that's the easy bit the difficult part is working out well what am i what isn't in front of me what am i not seeing what have i not been told because that is is even more important than what's in front of you because if what in front of you is a biased sample of what you're really interested in then you will be completely deluded if you just put things through this algorithm so you have to know why am i seeing this data who wants and the other thing of course is who wants me to see it? you know am i being fed this am i being manipulated by somebody who wants to argue for a particular position and so another you thing have to have this very questioning skeptical um forensic detective mind and another thing is how strong your conclusions should be because you say okay let's say that I I I have the raw data of how many children visited hospitals in the UK in 2018 okay yeah. so this is a raw data that is basically valid but then I want to know whether this number increased or decreased yeah. in the upcoming year or what should I do? To increase or decrease this number and this is a whole different yeah. questions yeah because but again you have to distinguish that what i deal with in the book which i don't think anybody normally do, deals with in the statistics book is a is a data science issue when you've got all the data you know so let's say we do know everything all the hospital admissions you've got a good record system you actually know exactly how many people there's no uncertainty about that so where's the statistical inference well The statistical inference is in a way is quite a subtle philosophical idea because you have to think well you know the number we're seeing arose from some fairly you know uncertain process and so even if the numbers went have gone down from the previous year well, it doesn't it necessarily mean that the underlying risk for people to go in the hospital has gone down because just by chance it may be a bit lower this year now it's we've got all the data there's no sample. But there's still uncertainty not about the numbers but there's uncertainty about the underlying process now this gets into a real philosophical idea because we have to think well I think it is I find it very helpful to think of the fact that well we're seeing one world and many others might have occurred you know we're just saying you know there's all these different paths the world can take 
and we're seeing one and we have to think well we're only seeing one what, what other ones might have been plausible and i think that's actually not not a ridiculous idea but when we've got all the data there's no sample and also i like the idea when i'm thinking about the future is not to think in terms of chance too much or any of those ideas just to think well possible futures as we look forward there's all these little branches all these little triggers we can take this multiverse idea we can all go down so many paths only one of them we're going to stay in we're going to observe now what we want to know is well in all these branches going out what proportion roughly do we think are going to end up with me dead in 10 years or something like that? and that's my the the in a way metaphor i like for thinking about my probability of surviving 10 years which i personally judge you know i could i, I won't put a number on it now but i could judge okay. that is, is i think of it in terms of well all these possible futures some of them are going to be alive. Some of them are going to be dead. <laughs> you know, how many and, of them am I going to be dead in? And, and it's only a metaphor. I'm not saying the multi these multiverses are there, but I'm, it's a. I think it's a really powerful image and metaphor. But I, with your permission, I think there is another very important point in your book that I I can relate to Francis Bacon because Francis Bacon, like the father of modern science, uh, taught us that you need to start with the data and then construct a theory but it doesn't go like this never it never goes like this you always start with a theory with some theory in mind and then you try to say or to feed the data because you said in it, it took so much time to correlate between smoking and lung cancer because many people who smoked didn't have lung cancer. Mm -hmm. So we always start with some notion of theory of how those two or three or 10, or I don't know how many variables are connected. And then we try to apply mm -hmm. the data. And mm -hmm. we never start with the data because data itself has infinity different interpretations. Mm -hmm. I, think, I mean, it really comes down, as talked about in the book a lot, about, you know, what do we mean by model? Um, and, uh, you know, model is sort of, a map for how we think the world works, a mathematical representation of how, which is the first thing about it is always inadequate. So it's all, you know, George Box's statement, all models are wrong. It's always inadequate. It can never explain the whole world. We can't even explain how, you know, three three molecules bounce around each other. So it's-, it's The hopeless. three body problem. Yeah, we can't do that. And so how can we ever mathematicize the world? So, um, so the, um, it's always inadequate, but it can be really useful. And so, and that's why, you know, we spend all the time with data. We, we, we are, as you said, moving between our understanding of how the world works, the data with things we actually observe, and they interact with each other all the time. The data helps us try to improve our model by some sort of inductive process. And then, and then we make, you know, judgments about what we might expect to see. We observe some data, it doesn't fit. And so it goes on in this sort of cyclical process of continually revising our understanding of the world. Or well, how you say it, you you call it PPDGC. Oh, there you go, PP, yes. I forgot, PP, yes. PPD, yes. Um, uh, I forgot what it is now, um, uh, yes. problem, plan, uh, yes. data, conclusion. Analysis PPD. and... Yeah, 
Okay, so, now, with your permission, let me show you a very, very funny meme that was very, I think, very very popular two years ago. And the idea is like this. If you, oh, if, if, yeah. you watch our, if you watch us on Spotify, so there is a crank in the wall, says yeah. statistic, and then I put a frame on the crank, and then it's called machine yeah. learning. But then I have many, many people watching yeah. this walk of art, and this called artificial intelligence, which, which is basic say, which basically says that artificial intelligence is nothing more than algorithm and math. You put algorithm, you put math, and this giant unicorn is called machine learning. Nothing new in this field. And many people say, okay, this is basically, we have nothing more in machine learning and artificial intelligence than statistics. And this is just a fancy way to say statistic, which we have been doing all the time ever since Francis Galton and Ronald Fisher and uh, Pearson and all the great names from like 100 years ago. And basically machine learning hasn't developed anything new beside fancy words and fancy names for well-known statistical uh, procedures. Do you agree? Or do you understand those jokes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I hear those all the time. And um, but I, what, I, what the better picture would be, of course, to show in the final one, some f- uh, funders coming out and giving the person lots of money to do their research <laughs> yes. and not giving the statisticians anything at all. So that would be, or someone buying their product because it says AI on it, which is utter yes. nonsense. Anyway, when you, so, when you, when you find raising, it's AI. When yeah. you, uh, when you hiring, it's machine learning. When you implementing, it's linear regression. And when you debug, it's print. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I, I kind of think, well, I've been doing, you know, according to what's called AI now, I've been doing that for 30 years. And I think, well, maybe I should just always have said I was working in AI. But I used <laughs> to work in AI. <laughs> I used to. And no, I mean, there's a few reasons I disagree. It's not, this is not just, there's an intersection between statistics and machine learning and data science and AI. But, um, but because the, the cartoons you're showing, I think wrongly suggest, go against everything I've just said, because it's suggesting that statistics is some algorithmic mathematical process to automatically extract information from data. And my entire argument for the, our discussion in the book is saying, no, it isn't. You cannot. It's, it's much, much bigger than that. That is was one tiny bit of it. But there again, but and uh, I think, though, that machine learning um, in terms of well, in one way, I'd agree that some of its objectives, I mean, people, part of statistics has been to do with classification and prediction and things like that. And, on, and doing, but using on the whole, a very limited set of tools in terms of regression. We're fantastically strong, amazingly powerful, and often just as powerful as the more complex ones. But there has been an enormous growth in, in sophisticated machine learning methods, which I'm full of admiration for. Um, and uh, but I, I, I but they're still just especially with supervised learning methods, they're still but the other unsupervised stats had some basic cluster analysis stuff for ages. Obviously, it's got enormously more sophisticated. So that particular branch, which was one corner of statistics, has grown up brilliantly and doing fantastic work. I mean, I think the sort of stuff in random forests in particular, just extraordinary how powerful it is and how effective it is. I also would say that I think it's one should always try to do things as simply as possible. So in that sense, yeah, there's a big, there's an intersection there and the machine learning, you know, but it's only, but there is only, it's a Venn diagram and there's an intersection within the sort of 
what you might call rather standard statistical methods. But intellectually, I don't really see a big difference between these, that, that the, the regression stuff and the others. And, let and, me give you, now, um, let, now let me give you the other side of this equation. And there is a great uh, medium article named, uh, no, machine learning is not just glorified yeah. statistics. And he says two very, very uh, important things. One, that you can be very good at machine learning without knowing advanced statistics. This yeah. is, yeah. This is true. This is, oh, as George Bush called it, a true fact. And yeah. and 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 the other thing is that regression over one million variable is 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 unachievable in normal or classical statistical approaches. Yeah. And this no, is no, one very thing. Yeah. No, and that's all I'm saying. That exactly, I agree that statistical methods have on the on the whole because of the problems they you know have are much more restricted. Um, but the basic idea is extended, and I really like you know the, the fact that. There's a big overlap in the in the skills and the and the people who work on, you know, massive massive regression problems. Well, they they they're an extension of them. It's not they. I mean, they, they are new. They are new and they're brilliant and things. They absolutely do fantastic stuff. Um, so it's definitely not just statistics at all. Uh, no. I had a talk with Charles Mary, uh, the author of Belker or the co-author of Belker, and he said something very nice. He said he is a social scientist, and he said. That the idea that the social science uh, that the social sciences has implemented only one method of algorithm, one algorithm, which is linear regression, just one variable linear regression, made this field so less powerful than what it could have been. Oh. Because we said so many phenomena can't be. explained using oh, one variable yeah. linear regression oh, I, I, well possibly but what, what I, if you start throwing these enormously complicated black box methods at social science data I would be so deeply skeptical of anything that came out of it I really would because I mean, it's bad enough you know people find just using regression and structural equation modeling and things like that you know difficult enough to produce something sensible and reliable if you threw all these complicated methods no, but, people, but just david i mean that, that's when when people start saying oh i'm going to apply machine learning to this database and i think oh for heaven's sake you know let's there's a we, i need i would i'm deeply skeptical about applying very complex methods to what i might call sort of very poorly structured um data possibly you know which with not reliably collected there's the total difference between using these methods on image data on you know on really you know, technological te technical data technological data where you know what you're doing you know the method you know what you know exactly what you've got in front of you or or games of course and that so there's a massive jump in category of problem to move into I don't know general medical databases or general social you know sociological data and things like that i i so it's okay so let me give you the other side of the equation there is very it's very it's very hard to think of even one example of any of any relationship between two variables in the social science that is purely linear and it doesn't converge yeah, or it yeah, doesn't yeah. have a u-shape so yeah. they so if you're applying linear regression or and just linear linear regression then Your ability to explain or to understand the real relations between variables is decreased tremendously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could, you know, you can move to a generalized additive model or something like that. So, but still, something that's essentially 
transparent, that you can understand what's going on, you can demonstrate what's going on. So yeah, obviously people have been too restricted, but I'm, I'm as I said, I'm very skeptical about moving to you know, gen, you know, black box algorithmic methods. Ten uh, layers, neural networks. Oh with, God, yeah, uh, no, absolutely. They, they, they are in the right for the right problem. They are fantastically effective for the right technological problem to solve, engineering sort of problem to solve about protein folding and things like that. Absolutely brilliant, genius, wonderful work. Don't start thinking that somehow you can put these onto human onto because poorly in collected social data. life you want your model to be explainable you I want know. to be able to interpret your model in a way that you understand it is I this think, the, I, I, is I this think this not just the there new, yes but in in almost any area I mean explainable AI is obviously a massive area quite rightly because we know the uh, fragility of some black box methods to tiny changes in inputs we know and unless I mean I for you know trustworthy algorithms should unless they can uh, unbel demonstrate unbelievable performance under all sorts of situations um They, like they, image they, classification. Yeah. I, I, I can handle with black boxes in image classification because it's much more it's much better than human. So I don't know yeah. what happened there in layer number 17 and I yeah, really don't, don't care. care. but I know that it gave me good results. Yeah, because you've got, you've got enough empirical situation. But even then, you know, you know quite often you could tweak just a few things and get some, you know, might be. Anyway, you usually need empirical testing on, on that. But no, explainable AI is really is, is um, an incredibly important area. And, uh, but and it's again, very hard to achieve. It is hard to achieve. But I mean, that's why, of course, I would always say that the first thing is, could you do it simpler? There's always the first question I ask. And often, you know, I'm oh, sorry, I, I do have a bit of a, an, a, a problem with people calling things AI, um, which are often, you know, regression or could be done just as well with regression. And I think, well, that's fine. But then let's call nearly all statistics AI. You know, either, you know, the fact that you know, AI, oh, it's got to be using some complex machine learning method. Well, this is nonsense. AI has nothing to do with what's under the, under the bonnet, under the hood. AI is to do with the function, how it works in society. If it's a regression, because we, we build decision support systems for doctors that give probabilities of cancer patients surviving 10 years and things like that. And we don't, we're, it's built, built on a Cox regression and we don't call it AI. We could, we should call it AI. We'd have got more funding if we'd called it AI. But, and actually it is AI, according to almost all definitions currently being used in the EU, it is AI. It's just that I, I don't like using the phrase because it's, for me, it's a toxic phrase because it's associated almost always with somebody trying to manipulate um, somebody. you know the media or funders or things so i think ai is is a toxic phrase i won't oh, use okay my, even right. though what i do is ai okay so give no, please give me so please give me an advice because i'm a teacher and i teach data science i did the course introduction to data science right. and this is why i i love your book so much because it has the titanic database from yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And the titanic database is like the i don't know it's like the the, the most important I, no it's not important but the most famous database mm. it's like the iris database which i hate so yeah, much yeah it's it's so stupid okay yeah. But, but but the Titanic database it's so important it, it, it's so popular and it basically could you build a model that classify or predict who is going to who is going uh, to survive the Titanic crash and who is going to uh, not survive the Titanic crash and the idea is that there is no perfect model because who decided was God and God had like other 
uh, other metrics, other metrics. So, and this is so important that I see something from the data science realm in statistics. So please give me an advice. What should I, how do I incorporate statistic and probability? And I, I do incorporate probability, but how do I incorporate statistics when I teach introduction to data science? In your opinion, oh, I, I, yes, it's tricky. So I think data science is wonderful because it it, it it's got a much more broader perspective than we just have on. much more students in data science. Got, of course, you do. It's a statistic department. Yeah, it's quite good. I mean, I I now really I think everything should be renamed statistics and data science. And I, but I think keeping a distinction because data science is um it's a it's a you know a technology. It, it's solving problems for people. And it, it you know it's taking data and using them to solve problems and producing um in a way um products almost that 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 do that do something. Um, and statistics is I think broader because in, 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 in there's big intersection and data science. You know, contains lots of stuff on uh, quite right, on the data wrangling, the, the structure of the data, the, the, the you know doing things with it, the technology of doing things with it. And statistics has got a lot more on the sort of philosophy of learning and probability theory and the ideas of inference. And I think the the, the crucial idea is this idea of inference. Data science is about tends to be, I think, taught like you know doing things to data. So you've got a list of, you've got all sorts of different algorithms you can apply to it, you've got nice graphics you can use, you've got all sorts of technology, and something comes out. Now, okay, now what? You know, now what? Is it any good? Um, you know, could it be better? What, what, what are the problems here? What Crucially, what, am, what is my uncertainty in it on thing? What, what's the uncertainty? And um, so it, it, in a way, statistics is that, provides that extra idea, having you produce something, and now you want to say, well, is it any good? You know, is this reliable? Are the claims I'm making reliable? And for that, you need a broader perspective, because for that, you have to go beyond the data that's actually in front of you. And it's not just a confusion metric. So let me just... Uh, no, no, no. Let no, me just, you know, pinpoint this point, because, you know, when I say, okay, how accurate your model is, so I have yeah. the F1 score, and I have, like, like the confusion metrics, and I have true positive, true, true, true negative, yeah, yeah. and I have uh, type oh, 1, type 2 arrows, but yeah. you said, no, 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 those are great, but just go higher and yeah. higher. Say, yeah. okay, what's the meaning of all this? Well, I think, I mean, the first thing is that I would always, I mean... You know, classification, sometimes you need a classification, but for, to really evaluate a system, you have to look at the probabilities it's giving to the to the, to the outcome. So the probabilities are the most basic output, and any decent system should be able to provide probabilities in order to express the confidence in any classification that it makes. Is it just on the boundary or is it really, really confident? So first of all, we can look at the probabilities, and just modeling those probabilities requires a different perspective to say, well, I'm not going to say this is black or white, I'm going to put, well, it's maybe this, it may be that. So then we start thinking about uh, our uncertainty about any classification. So I think that's, you know, the first step, and that starts getting very statistical. But even beyond that, I think, um, it's still, you know, how do I know whether this is going to work in for... <laughs> I mean, it is a bit, the Titanic is a bit ridiculous because, I mean, first of all, who cares? And secondly, it's not going to happen again. It's not like this is a, a transferable bit of technology. But, mostly, you know, if it's really going to be useful in, a, in, in data, data science, it's going to be something you build and then start applying elsewhere to new areas, to new data. Now, you can always do split sample and cross-validation and things like that. But frankly, that is still inadequate to judge 
actually how well, whether the claims I'm making based on the data in front of me are going to be applicable in other contexts. And that is, that's science, but it's also technology when we want to move that technology into another context. And that is statistics. That is the art of learning from data because you cannot tell that just from the data in front of you. You have to know about the possible biases in the data in which you've collected. In, in other words, it's generalizability outside your particular little context requires that sort of judgment and knowledge. And that's why for, you know, fair AI, explainable AI, um, you know, unbiased AI and things like that have become so important because they're all things that go outside just producing a classifier. So I, I, I think that's where these bigger ideas of learning from data are. I think they're essential within data science. Otherwise, data science just becomes a bag of tricks. And it becomes like a parody of statistics. I mean, statistics, as I said, a lot of statistics is badly characterized as a bag of tricks. Oh, we've got some data. We, we do a regression. We do an analysis of variance outcomes of p-value and things like that. Awful, awful way to think of statistics. It's so not that. And it'd be terrible if data science got that same badge. Oh, it's just, we've got this list of you know, support vector machines and, you know, the, the K and N. K and N. And we just run through them one after the other, and I, like I did on the Titanic feature, <laughs> and looked at which one did best. Okay, I did it because it was interesting. I wanted to illustrate some points. But that is not, you know, that is so limited as an idea of data science. One one thing that I teach my students regarding the Titanic data set is what is more, which one is better, to be wealthy on the Titanic uh, ship yeah, yeah. or to be women? Uh, yeah, let's say yeah, that yeah. God gave you the opportunity. What do you want to yeah, be? That's interesting. Yeah. You want to be a woman or you want to be wealthy? Yeah, you want yeah. to be a child yeah. or you want to be... So this... This that's gives nice. us a lovely question. Yes, yeah. this gives Beautiful. us something that you can relate to because again, yeah. you have you can do you can extrapolate the knowledge of the Titanic to anything outside the realms of the 1912 accident. Yeah, okay? yeah because yeah. It, it's not the same. I now, like those, those are really nice questions. Of course, you want to be a wealthy woman. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, a wealthy woman is is is, is much better. Now, first of all. Yeah. First of all David, thank you so much for your time. I have one last question, which strikes me as a researcher, as a young researcher. And your scholar, your Google Scholar profile is, I don't have many adjectives. I think staggering is the word <laughs> I'm looking for. But uh, so please, and don't give me this, uh, uh, this fake humble uh, uh, now, right now, because I this is a genuine request. As a young researcher, you have like over 130,000, it, it, uncountable number of, uh, <laughs> of citation, which means that your work influenced many, many people. Basically, it doesn't just mean that you got the tenure earlier or you got a professor, or you got a full faculty professor. It, it means basically that your work has influenced many many people this is like this is why we we think about this citation index so as a as a as a guy who have 2015 right now 200 215 could you give me some tips or advice how to how to increase this number how to be more influential okay i mean there's 
I think those two things are not. There may be a correlation, but there's you know you can have a lot of citations and not be and but and vice versa. But um, I think I, all I can do is just say what I what I, I suppose my lesson from I've learned from my career. Well, I've been very lucky. Be lucky. Usual thing. It was be lucky. Um, what are the odds? Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I be in a job where you can. I actually my main thing was I was in a job where I could choose what I wanted to work on, and um, and it was at a time been at a time when there's a, a huge number of new ideas coming up. Bayesian statistics, Markov chain Monte Carlo. There, it was at a time of um, massively increased computation. So suddenly we could do things you couldn't do before. And so, um, and the other thing is, it's an awful thing to say, is I wouldn't say be fashionable, but look at what is actually interesting. What do people actually want to know? And and f go, go with your enthusiasm. Um, and not just rather than burying into one small area and doing this actually look at well what's you know what are the what's going on what what's the fun stuff what are people talking about and and i and so i've no I've, I've actually sort of shamelessly gone for you know fairly popular things things that i know people will be interested in that i'll get invited to give talks on and and so this is a very honest advice yeah i've yeah, heard this advice i think it's 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 very true but it's very honest advice usually mm -hmm. people don't say i know i seek for my own passion that was deeply unrelated to what the public wanted to know no 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 no, 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 no. no i no i think you should but you know because you want to i want to be involved in the public debate about it. now increasingly you know, i do a lot of media stuff i want to be there i want to be working with the public and you don't get there i don't think unless you have got a bit of an ear for what people are actually interested in. Um, I mean, it, it, that itself is not enough. You can't just do, otherwise all you'll do is work on sports work or you know political polling or the stuff that gets in the news. So you have to also be, I think it's not just that. You also have to think about, you have to be, actually be in touch with intellectual trends as well, as I said, the move towards realizing that modern computation would make Bayesian methods practical for the first time. And that suddenly opened up an enormous, absolute explosion around about 1990. It was the most exciting time. Most and how do you work. how do you find those trends right now using like Ooh. the Google Trends or using Yeah, no, like, I don't know. Oh, you got to sniff. No, sniff, sniff, sniff the world. You know, be aware of what the debates are going on. That's why conferences are so good. I mean, and you know, things where you can actually find out. You know what's the cool? What's what's interesting? What where is this field going? You know what what are dead ends, and where is this field going? What 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 is actually going to be? What is actually going to work? I mean, the other thing is right back in the nineteen eighties, working with Yuda Pearl and others on putting probability into AI. That was a and again in nineteen eighty six. That was a tremendously exciting time of of um, bringing together graphical modeling and AI. It was and it was wonderful, wonderful time. So. Then, I mean, the other thing I've done is is get involved in, you know, it's kind of fairly high profile public works in public inquiries into scandals and things like that, and which I'm on on one at the moment. I should be working on it um, on infected blood. So, um, and that's quite good, partly because it's is of genuine public interest, and I think you are helping the debate, um, but also because people are interested in it. But I think for the real, if for the real citations, the real citations have come from. You know, papers on Bayesian methodology, which was based at this time when of bringing together the mathematical work and the um, and the practical work in a when 
at a time when you know this was this is where things were moving this is the movie you're going with where the whoa this is so exciting we are, we they say we know we're meeting each other and we're talking oh and every time you talk to someone else it's gone on a bit and and almost trying to be in on that wave of why where the intellect in the interesting stuff has gone but not just for you know pop not pure populism you have to combine it with some i think jane real um work with other you know collaborations on the intellectual basis for that so i i know i can yeah exactly and I'm, it's fine i'm making this up as i go along but i think my, where i've managed to do is to both combine the sort of trying to develop the intellectual foundations and statistical foundations in areas that were really interesting yeah i think i don't know if it i i sure that it doesn't apply to you because you are like A genius but the idea is you know that many times when you seek for the fashionable topics you have like the top notch you have all the geniuses in this field and mm-hmm. many people say that in the AI you know we extract or we we pulled the AI community or even you know Microsoft Apple Google just you know sucked all the great talents from the university to mm-hmm. their corporation mm-hmm. and when you tried to be when you try to contribute to To these fields you mm. better be very very mm. smart mm. and if you are say okay I'm not sure that I'm in the level of David Spiegelholter or Jan Lacoon or Jeff Hinton or all the other great names I I wonder whether this advice apply to people who are not in the very very far uh, right yeah I mean I but I'm I, I mean you're wrong I'm not very smart I you know I'm not very clever my math isn't very good and Um, but what I've done is sort of spot you know terribly spot gaps in the market where there is an opportunity for example and I don't know the mo- I don't know what's going on enough in the world now but you know seeing an area which is of interest where other people are not spending all their time working I don't know whether it's criminology or whether it's you know even archaeology in somewhere that where there's a possibility the other thing I've always done is collaborate massively always work with people never on my almost never on my own Um, so always collaborated hugely on people who were interested often very interested in particular problems so I worked in a huge amount with doctors and others and now working in criminology but um you know I think uh, spotting um d- d- in a way that where a new technology can meet a problems people genuinely have and you can genuinely help them that everybody loves that everybody from both sides really love it If you can do that I mean I was working on you know surge working with surgeons on their mortality rates but also can then combine it with industrial quality control techniques Q sums and things like that sequential analysis and putting those two together was enormously fruitful and got a huge amount of coverage you know interest because you were saying well here's these methods developed for measuring stuff coming off production lines and here's this surgeon worried about his patients and we're going to put those together and So it was never people had never done that before so I think that um those it's, it's spotting those gaps where you can bring together somebody you won't be best at any of these things but you're you're the intermediary that can see understand enough of the really clever stuff and understand enough of someone's problem that you can bring these things together and that's where data science is so cool it's just great stuff because you can be those intermediaries you which is and uh, to do that kind of work 
it's like the frog it, it, it's not the best or the fastest fish in the water no. and yeah. it's not the fastest animal on land but just his mirability to be to live both in water and yeah. in land makes it like a whole difference make the yeah. whole difference I mean, statisticians are all frogs i mean uh, and so you know they can point anything i do there's always large numbers of people are better at it than i am huge numbers i can list you know i don't nothing i do is is but it's it's the combination you can put together the that can be so valuable and and, and maybe and this combination can... and maybe this combination is much more valuable now than ever since we have so many different disciplines and realm and yeah. so much yeah. knowledge so just the mere fact that you can you know that you understand a little bit of one thing and a little bit of one thing and you can do the connection although you are not an expert you're not a genius just the mere fact that you could connect two unrelated two seemingly unrelated dots makes the whole difference i that that's that's where i've always tried to work as what statisticians have tended to do and i think data sciences can do as well because they, in a way it's an well it's nice term it's, it's an enabling technology it's something that just helps things happen by bringing together expertise in different areas but but it doesn't mean that you are you know the star of anything particularly and the, require... and and the very last question what's your one best productivity tip And don't please don't tell me no I'm not very productive okay <laughs> oh God no oh um oh um walking walking um it, it, because you do need that for me I, I I'm most productive when I'm really left alone for hours to just get on with something and be really focused um and I, I like being on my own and I like working on my own but you need to get out and walk as well. Because it's when you're walking that everything sorts itself out everything settles down or sleeping yes the best productivity sleep is sleeping as well so walking and sleeping I would say are the best ways to to get But sleeping is, is most beneficial when you go to sleep with one specific with a problem with mind, a problem. yes yeah absolutely no yeah I wake up all the time so so um unfortunately I, I, productivity is is try to get some time on your own somewhere quiet and uh, yeah David Spiegelhalter, Sir David Spiegelhalter, the, heart of, uh, the, the author of The Art of Statistics, Learning from Data. You know, many people said, you're going to speak with a Cambridge professor. How can we handle your bad accent? And you did tremendously well. Thank you so much for, for your patience. And it was so much enlightening and so much fun. And this is a great book just to... Just read this book. It's a it's a really fabulous read. Thank you so much for for your oh, time. I learned thanks, so much. Thanks so much for the opportunity. It's been really fun. I could go, and you can tell I could go on for hours. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> Thank you so much, David. Yeah. Okay. Great. Bye bye. אם הגעתם עד לכאן, מגיע לכם כל הכבוד. אז תנו לי להגיד לכם שלושה דברים קצרים. הדבר הראשון, אם שמעתם משהו בשיחה שמעניין אתכם, שאתם רוצים לקחת הלאה, פשוט ספרו אותו לאנשים אחרים. משהו מעניין שאני אמרתי, משהו מעניין שהאורח שלי אמר, איזשהו רעיון שאתם רוצים לקחת איתכם לחיים, פשוט ספרו אותו לחבר או לחברה. זאת הדרך הטובה ביותר לזכור את הרעיונות מתוך השיחות האלה. הדבר השני, אם אתם רוצים לקחת חלק בקהילה שלנו ולפגוש ולדבר עם אנשים כמוכם, אתם מוזמנים לערוץ הטלגרם שלנו, שווה לכם מאוד. פשוט תראו עוד אנשים שמתעניינים בדברים מגניבים בדיוק כמוכם. והדבר האחרון, 
אם אתם יכולים, דרגו את הערוץ שלנו באפליקציית הפודקאסטים שלכם, זה יכול להיות בספוטיפיי, באפל פודקאסט או בגוגל פודקאסט, זה תהליך קצר של שתי שניות, הוא מאוד מאוד יעזור לנו להפיץ את הבשורה הלאה. שיהיה לכם כיף גדול וכיף בשיחה הבאה.